You're listening to Doula Stories, a podcast where we use storytelling to encourage, inform, and love on doulas. Each episode, we'll hear a story about what happens in the birth room from the doula's perspective. I'm Kelia, she, they. And I'm Ajira, she, they. And we're so glad you could join us for today's story. Today, we're hearing from Micaela McHenry and Ari Guajardo Johnson who are both birth workers based on unceded Ojibwe, Ottawa, Anishinaabe land in what is now known as the Metro Detroit area of Michigan. And the reason we're hearing from both of them today is because they both supported the same person through their birth experience in slightly different ways, which we're super excited to hear about. But first, um, Ari, tell us about yourself. I just want to start off by thanking you both for having us on this podcast. Uh, I am a big fan and I am slightly jealous and hurt. It took you, <laughs> took you this long to invite me on, but it's okay. Let's just, you know, I'll move past that. Um, no, but, but I just, I just, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah. I'll, y'all, my name is Eric Guajardo Johnson and my pronouns are she, they, uh, I am a birth worker, a holistic peer counselor for survivors of sexual violence, and I specialize in supporting survivors of sexual trauma um, through and around the birth experience. Since COVID, pretty much, I've actually shifted most of my services from supporting general population folks to supporting survivors of sexual assault virtually. And so what that means is that... Um, Folks will meet with me for four or five sessions before birth to go over just to to navigate and have some orientation with some of the most triggering, potentially triggering aspects of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. Uh, And what we'll share later today with uh, Micaela and myself is like, this was the ideal scenario. Like if I could wave a magic wand, every survivor of trauma would have had the support that our beloved person was able to have in our story today. So this is like the best case scenario. And I also have a lot of other hats. So I'll just simply state that my website is birthbruja.com. B-R-U-J-A is Bruja. Birth Bruja is an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to reproductive care and healing. So in terms of the context for identity, first, I want to share that I am a survivor of sexual violence. And I also am mixed race. Uh, My mom's side is from Mexico, Leon, Guanajuato area. And my dad's side is predominantly German. And I actually don't know too much about that side because, candidly, sexual violence has actually been a really strong legacy on both sides of the family. And specifically on my dad's side, The trauma as a result of that history meant that folks wanted to cut ties Mm -hmm. with previous family and cultures. And so therefore, I don't know much about my dad's side of the family, you know, beyond a certain point because of that. So, so yeah, Mm -hmm. ancestors and healing and trauma. (laughs) Thank you so much. And Mikaela, we'd love to hear more about you. Hi guys. I'm Mikaela. Um, please feel free to call me Mickey. My pronouns are she, her, and Ea. I'm originally from the ancestral homelands of the Akimel O'odham tribe, which is also known as Mesa, Arizona. I'm mixed indigenous lineage, both Mexico and the Americas. Um, 
specifically Lakota, Apache, and Mexica. Um, my focus has actually shifted to my birth work. I quit my nine to five. Yesterday was my last day. I'm super excited. Um, so that's super awesome. My big focus with my birth work is I focus on indigenous traditions from my direct lineage and BIPOC birthing people and birth centered activism. So a big part of my work to me is helping reclaim that ancestral piece that so many of us are yearning for and missing um, just because I've been able to do such. My father was murdered when I was eight years old. We don't have contact with that family. And I had to really search really hard to find anything really about myself. And I'd really like to offer that to birthing people so that, you know, a lot of those questions come up when they're birthing because they're thinking about what traditions and cultural things can they pass on to their children. Um, Mm. Yeah. And also a survivor of sexual trauma. Um, And to me, it's really important that we can work through that so that we can create those successful families and break those cycles. Mm. That's so beautiful. Thank you both for sharing. Can we just oh. dive straight into our, our, our trauma so, healing shape? perfect. It's so perfect. <laughs> you were both like, hello, trauma. Good to see you. <laughs> and I think that's part of the work though, right? Like yes. be yeah. open about it and, and honest about it because that does encourage our survivors that we are working with to, to open up, right? And to, to understand there isn't that shame stigma around it because it shouldn't be right. It's not, we know that it sets us apart. Sure. From the general population that maybe doesn't have those experiences, but why do we have to hide it? Why does it have to be something Mm. that's in a closet? Right. And not talked about and something shameful because it's not. And I agree. Normalize talking about our trauma. Exactly. Like the person who should be ashamed is the person who inflicted it, not the person who survived it. Exactly. And especially knowing how fucked, hyper-professionalized, specifically reproductive care spaces can be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually really important for us, just as y'all said, to like normalize trauma, normalize our healing, because it also brings a sense of integrity to the work, because it just shows the active work that we're doing, rather than putting all of our struggle into tidy little boxes where we pretend like it's not there all while maybe we're suffering deeply and the suffering is actually getting in the way of our ability to support others, you know, Mm -hmm. versus acknowledging like, Hey, y'all, you know, that, you know, that wounding that I've been casually talking about because I've been in therapy for so many years, like, yeah, so that's been like difficult again, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's, that's, I mean, shit, if that's not doula work, like doula work, is so intensive on like an emotional and intellectual, a spiritual, a physical level that like, if we're not finding ourselves depleted at one point or another, then we're not paying attention. Right. Like, yeah, this is why I'm so excited to hear this story in particular from the two of you, because you're covering a lot of ground with just supporting this one person. So let's, yeah, let's get started. Is there any background information that you want us to know? before you get started with how you met this person? Actually, Ari and I, this, this client is the first time we had worked together. We had like interacted on social media, but we had never actually had a conversation until this client. And how did y'all end up meeting her or 
I don't actually know what pronouns they use. They use she, her. Um, so she actually reached out to me on Instagram because I think at the time I didn't even have a website and I was just kind of looking more for community in the area. Um, One thing to note um, about Raven is uh, Raven's has indigenous ancestry. I believe they're mixed and yes, this is her second kiddo. And that's one of the identity things that um, Mickey and I have also shared and connected on uh, was having a mixed background, having a dedication to reclaiming ancestral wisdom and doing that work in Detroit. Even though I grew up here, um, I've only been back for, as of today, like two and a half years. But like Mickey and I haven't been back for too long. And at least my experience of the Metro Detroit area is that of the birth workspaces is that the mainstream spaces are predominantly white and Christian and uh, cis female. And also ethnically or racially, it tends to be like the quote unquote general spaces are mostly white. And then the, I guess, birth worker of color spaces are black is what I've noticed, you know, and and black centered, right. Which like, especially in Detroit area, that makes so much sense, Mm -hmm. but also it's not, you know, that's not space necessarily for someone who's Brown, you know? Um, And so one of my struggles, especially, you know, before COVID was finding a space that was either black and Brown indigenous or just right. A space where a Brown person can come and, and connect. And so that was part of my frustration of being in the Metro Detroit area. And that was one of the connections that Mickey and I made was having a heart for justice and healing and reclaiming ancestral wisdom. And then when um, Raven reached out, it was just, for me, it was like that, you know, like when your heart just expands and you're just like, oh, like Diosa, like this is my dream client, you know, like mm-hmm. someone who wants to do the work and has already been doing the work and it was a dream scenario um, to connect with Raven and then to connect further with Mickey. Hmm. So what was the beginning of that relationship like? Sure. Um, so the beginning of the relationship is uh, Raven shared some of their background with me, but at the time, you know, the first couple sessions that we had virtually, they really were guarded as, you know, many trauma survivors are. They were forthcoming with the trauma um, but definitely were wary of, of who to trust. And a big thing for me was recognizing that and honoring that, right? I mm. didn't want to come off pushy. And so we really connected over our love of music. The birthing person is actually a singer and a songwriter. And we're around the same age, so we like a lot of the same music. And they also mentioned to me about their similar struggles that Ari and I were having about finding a space for a mixed indigenous folk, um, specifically somebody that identifies right as, as indigenous Mexican and indigenous American, like myself, it's mm-hmm. hard to know where your space is, right? Like, do I lean more towards which, you know, lineage is predominant in my life? And it's hard because I, I do have both. Um, and so we, we kind of bonded over that and, that really set the tone for our relationship. Um, Their big focus was on healing and, and healing before their birth experience. And Mm -hmm. a big part of that too, is not only were they survivors of, of sexual trauma, um, but they were also survivors of medical trauma. 
um, with their previous pregnancy and, and birth, there was trauma throughout the entire thing. Um, and for folks who are not familiar with the term medical trauma, do you mind explaining that a bit? Sure. Um, medical trauma could, it could be anywhere from feeling like you're unheard, that ancestral trauma that comes with a lot of BIPOC folk, mm. you know, knowing that the medical industrial complex has affected us harmfully in so many ways from experimental procedures to just blatant negligence and abuse. Mm. And in the birthing space, that trauma can oftentimes be performing procedures without consent um, or without mm. really informing the birthing person of the reasons why and not giving them a chance and pushing for procedures that maybe looking back felt unnecessary to the birthing person. Um, yeah. It, it can be really harmful and have lasting effects, especially when a second or third pregnancy is, is coming up. A lot of those, those same feelings start to come up during that pregnancy and during that birthing space and, and labor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they had shared with you that that was part of the story from their first child. Exactly. And that was why they were looking for a birth worker um, and for support and and for that healing prior to that birthing experience. So we really just, I really just tried to connect organically with the birthing person, treated it no differently than I would getting to know a friend, for example, you know, asking about likes and dislikes, um, asking mm-hmm. about how their day went, just little things like that. And really focusing on what could I do to make sure that they felt safe with me, right? I can't assume mm-hmm. that everybody feels safe in space with me until I'm given that permission to access them in a, in a way that is intimate and, and personal to them. Can I just pause and celebrate that about you <laughs> real quick. Cause I, I don't know, I've met birth workers before who can, who understandably feel overwhelmed when a client comes forward with being a survivor. And I don't know, sometimes I get the sense that it's almost like as soon as we know that about someone or suspect that about someone, then there's almost like a script or, you know, a, a training that we've taken and then assume that just assuming a lot more about that person's story instead of focusing on the person in front of you and whatever they're bringing forth. So like, Oh, you, you know, somebody shares that they're a survivor. Well, let's start talking about how difficult pelvic exams can be, you know, like Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of doing what you're doing, I just really want to pause and appreciate that about what you're sharing. Thank you. Um, That's the only way I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, it's easy to get hung up on how to be the perfect birth worker, right? Like I have Mm -hmm. to do it this way, but it really isn't one size fits all. I mean, I supported this birthing person differently than I would have supported another birthing person. And it's not for believing that, you know, one person had more trauma than the other or or believing that one person was more deserving in a, in a different way. It's nothing like that. It's, it's that they are individual people. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that and you look at that person as a whole, you know, you should know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's not commonplace. But if you are looking at that person as a whole, it, it's not going to work the same for 
for this birthing person versus my next birthing person. Um, it really is and should be tailored to that person, at least in my opinion, because how am I going to go in and, and make assumptions about the way that somebody needs supported if I don't even know the person and I don't want to cause more harm. Right. And, and admittedly, like we all are capable of causing harm. I'm not saying that I'm perfect and that I'm, I'm not going to be harmful in ways or, or that I haven't been, but I'm able to, to take a step back and, and check that ego and be like, you know what? I might not know everything right now, but I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure that that birthing person is supported in the way that they need, not in the way that I think I need or that I think they need, but in the way that they need. Um, And, you know, it really just comes down to asking yourself every time you're coming up with these suggestions or these ideas of, of how you should support this person, asking yourself, is this right for the client? Not, is this right for me? Not, is this right for my friend or my sister or a different client? Is this right for this specific client? I don't care what I read in a book. You know, it, it helped me, but those should really just be guidelines for how we're treating these birthing people because they do deserve an individualized experience because why else are they hiring us? Why else are they asking us to support them and hold space for them if we're not going to do it for them? It's not for me. It's for them. So it it really came down to it was how do I make sure that I'm lovingly providing support, right? And how am I doing this from a place of love? And how am I doing this from a place that I'm essentially just a witness to one of life's most grand, beautiful ceremonies? And how could these people not become my family essentially. Right. And, and I want to treat them as such. It's interesting because I've been taught in mainstream trainings that you don't become friends with your, with your clients. And this birthing person still messages me to this day. I talked to them yesterday actually. And I don't, I obviously have boundaries, but I don't see why I can't continue those relationships with them. Right. And and have those connections because this was a big deal for them and, and for me to be able to be in that space with them. Like they invited me. I didn't come in being like, I'm so-and-so and this is how it's going to be done. Like they said, Hey, I need your support. And they chose me for a reason. And and I'm lucky to experience that with them. And I, I try really hard to really remember that, that it is a big deal and as much as, you know, it's easy to brush off, like it's my job, it, it is my job, but it's also, it's my duty as a person in a community. Like if we don't heal our communities, what are, what's the point of, of living in the community? What's the point of existing if you're not working to heal the collective mm. and self? Mm. I think what was coming up for me as I was listening to what you were sharing, Michaela, is just how that illusion of separation that, you know, this white supremacist illusion that we exist in in this moment, it does so much damage. You know, this idea that like being professional, and I did do air quotes, um, (laughs) is somehow going to make more space for people to be vulnerable or, and I understand that, you know, 
some of the thinking around that is to reduce the chances of enmeshment and trauma bonding, which is important. But I think that the aspect of creating community, of healing the collective, as you put it, but also just that human-to-human connection, the the piece about I'm a person who's hurting and you see me as a person, not as a case number or as a file for today, but as a human who's going through this very human experience and ceremony and wanting to claim my own healing. You know, can you hold space for me and witness me as I experience this? There's, in my experience, nothing more powerful than having, and and certainly in my experience as a survivor, of that witnessing, I don't think it can be underscored enough just how uh, transformational it can be. And I think that there's, you know, even without that layer, there's a similar need with birth of having your experience witnessed and not not by somebody who's telling you you're doing it wrong <laughs> or even by someone who's trying to direct you or correct you or, you know, say, hey, if you pushed a little harder, it would be better. But just somebody who can trust that you know what to do, including and but not limited to, you know, asking for the help that you need when you need it and having you be the director, the the instigator, the the focus, the person who is centered in that experience is so crucial. And I think it's one of the things that gets lost when we're not really like interrogating the many ways in which we're conditioned to relate to ourselves as well as each other. So there's some aspect of this that feels so huge that I'm struggling a little bit to put words to it. And yet I also know that I'm not alone in holding it and that each of us in this virtual space room (laughs) that we have together, but also, you know, folks who are listening, people we've worked with, our ancestors, like we all hold a piece of it. And, um, and I think that that's enough. Mm. This conversation is so rich. And that's one of the reasons why I was so pumped to have this conversation with y'all because I knew that each person in in this room is was going to bring that you know um and Mickey like so much of what you said reminded me of the importance of us as birth workers especially birth workers that are lesser experienced you know as they're like figuring out their authentic approach to this work um one of the things that I've seen is is folks get really rigid around boundaries and structure specifically because of this understanding about how burnout is so common. And, and so therefore naturally people can turn to structures to try to like mitigate that. Mm -hmm. However, or, and if we're looking at birth work as a purely professional thing where it's about getting X number of births and birthing bodies on our calendars per month, it could become a lot more of like straight up industry, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the huge things that I really appreciated and respected about you, Mickey, is how you approach this straight up from an indigenous perspective, from a decolonial perspective, which was based on relation rather than based on a formula, you know, like just as you had so beautifully shared, like this was entirely based off of Raven's needs 
and knowing that uh, a crucial part of both your and well, actually all of us in this conversation, a crucial part of our approach to birth work is recognizing the spiritual and communal significance of this experience. And so we can't approach it like a formula because some people can come in right with certain strengths and certain woundings, and we could never anticipate it unless we actually approach it with open hands and give space. Um, and so basically just, yeah, a friendly reminder for, for birth workers who are all like, I need, I need six to nine clients and I need to, you know, like they can only talk to me via text and only from this hour to that hour. It's like, y'all, who are we serving with that structure? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I guess like kind of transitioning into my work, like one of the things that's really important for any client who's come forth sharing that they are a survivor of trauma, whether it be sexual violence or not, is they need spaciousness. It's crucial that we aid spaciousness. And so also flat out, like if you're a birth worker, a reproductive care person, who wants to share with your community that you are capable of working with survivors of trauma, then it's crucial that you are someone that can be flexible with your, with your structures because some survivors, they need extra space or or they want spaciousness. Mm -hmm. They want time to connect first to the wounding before they can connect to the healing. Well, other survivors, they've done that in other spaces. So they just want to dive straight in you know, to the healing stuff, um, or to the strategies, like not everyone will come at this the same. So again, some people will need spaciousness for processing of emotions and other people will not. And it's all good either way, but only through us approaching this with humility and spaciousness can we know. So, um, one thing to note is I've been doing, um, consultations for survivors of trauma, really focusing on it by the time I, I met this birthing person and Mickey in this way, I've been doing uh, birth consultations for about two years. So that being said, most of my shape has been a doula shape. And so doing these consultations is a very different shape than a doula shape. Doula shapes are more, at least my, my doula shape is more similar to Mickey's where it is a lot more spacious. Um, but my work supporting survivors with consultations is a lot more strategic and like narrow, I guess I want to say, because my time with them is so much more limited. And so therefore it's kind of challenging because I have to like rein it in. So when I work with someone around trauma, it's really crucial that I create a strong container so that someone can, when they enter in the space with me, they can reconnect to our previous session pretty quickly, but also so that we have enough of an ending in that container that they can ideally, you know, go back to their living their life without feeling overwhelmed by our session, you know? Um, so ideally that's the, that's the vibe I'm going for. And so it would be different because we wouldn't necessarily have that slow transition into connecting. It would be more like, imagine basically a more of a intense heart to heart, you know, where you're looking someone in the eyes And instead of saying like, hey, what'd you do today? You're looking them in the eyes and you're saying like, how are you feeling in your body today? Mm. Just like right off, you know? So one of the beautiful things that I was so pumped about this scenario is that I knew that like the 
the little that I knew about Mickey and the, and in what the birthing person shared is like, I knew that Mickey was providing that spaciousness. Mm. And so it was just, it felt so dreamy um, because I could very easily weave in these themes that Mickey had already provided a foundation um, because Mickey had also, Mickey had already been working with this birthing person before I did. So, so that was really cool. And so from the beginning, one of the things that I shared is before um, the birthing person shared much about their experience around trauma, I started off by sharing like basically what I needed, the bare bones of what I needed um, to do the work with them. And then added the invitation of, you know, and you can share anything else that you'd want to add. Um, and so that means that I let this birthing person know that in terms of the focus of our work together, what was most important was their being able to identify how the trauma, whether it be the sexual trauma or the medical trauma or the trauma from recent um, community stuff that happened at that time, um, what was most important for our work was how the trauma had impacted them, their body, their mind, their spirit, their relationships with others. And if they wanted to give details of the trauma itself, they, they could do that if they thought it would help our work together. But it's really important that survivors know that they don't have to tell us the story. Like it's not our entertainment. It's not for us, right? It's not for our curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the, when I, I offer trainings to birth workers around supporting survivors of sexual violence. And that's one of the huge things is for every question that we ask, if we don't have our clear answer on how we would use that information to better serve them, then my opinion is, is we have no business asking that question. Mm -hmm. Right. So especially around sexual violence, there's no room to be like, so what happened to you? Who was it? Why were you there? Why did you, you know, like, nah, uh -uh, none of that shit. So, so I actually made that clear, started not, you know, at the beginning. And then uh, I actually didn't get too many details at that point about the kinds of the specifics around the narrative and, and it was not necessary. And so, so, you know, so we laid out the foundation and then before we dove into navigating any of the potential triggers, starting a pregnancy, we started off talking about creating a resilience and self-care plan. Mm -hmm. So this was a plan that was to help them identify all the resources that they have available, spiritual resources, social resources, um, access to, you know, institutional resources, you know, help identifying care and support that they could get from me and also from Mickey, you know, just like really rooting down into the resilience and, and support that's already there. Um, and then identifying of those strategies, identifying what are the things that can be helpful during our sessions when things get challenging and also what can be helpful for right after our sessions mm -hmm. to help process and release what's been brought up. And then of those strategies, what are the ones that would be really easily translatable into the birth room, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, um, Raven shared about how ceremony has been a huge source of support for them, connecting them to the um, resiliency of their ancestors and also to their mother and to their partner. And it was so beautiful. And one of the things that we, you know, we talked about from the get-go was what are ways that we can overtly weave in ceremony into the birth room and what are ways that she would feel comfortable weaving it into the birth room, knowing that there's a good chance that most of the staff uh, or like a good percentage of the staff would be white folk 
And so, so we started off in that way and it was just so awesome because like Mickey friend, if I had a dollar for how many times during my work over the you know weeks with them that they were like, Oh, I just had that conversation with Mickey or like, we just started having this way, you know, like there was so you like, have $20 or I'd have a lot. I'd have a lot of tacos. Okay. <laughs> like my taco budget would be really strong. <laughs> Y'all are such a dream team. <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was so, it was all like, yeah, Mickey making me look good. And like, I think I made you look good too. Like it was just so awesome. And also to know at this point, I think it was a few weeks into working with this birthing person before Mickey and I had our epic phone conversation that might've been like two hours long, three hours long. It was long. supposed to be 30 minutes. <laughs> it was. This was yeah, it was all, yeah. I was getting paid to talk to Ari. I was, I was actively at my nine to five and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to walk out of the building. And I did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was just, it was a really perfect, it was a really perfect start. Um, this person reached out to me at this point, it was earlier in their pregnancy. And I think it's important to note for any birthing person out there, like it's never too late to reach out Mm -hmm. for support. And, (laughs) and the sooner, you know, folks are able to find support. I feel the more spaciousness there is to actually integrate the support that is available to you Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of us, especially especially birthing person, like we're we're hella strong and we're inherently really resilient. And we're a lot of us are used to giving. And so it can take some time to actually adjust to receiving, the shape of receiving versus giving all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was what was so awesome about our timeline was that, yeah, like Raven was used to being the one that held it down for so many people. And little by little, we were able to come up with strategies and then have enough spaciousness and and opportunities to implement those strategies with success, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than it being like one giant to-do list of like, okay, I need to have like 15 minutes for breathing exercises and then 25 minutes for prayer. And then I need to go find this, you know, like rather than it being super rigid and about getting it right, this birthing person was able to really feel like, I loved that. And it was totally impractical because I had to take care of my first kiddo, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So one thing that I felt was really important when Raven started working with Ari is recognizing that Raven was going to flow through a range of emotions, right? And that some of those emotions might bring up emotions for me, right? As a, as a person myself and recognizing that right and and recognizing that this was so important to take care of of not just the birthing person but but of myself and to make sure that this was done in a way that was lovingly and and intentional and so a big thing for me with how it was going when they started working with Ari is I started to notice that Raven was was really like yearning for that space and yearning to be held and, and allowing me to hold them. Um, and I can know that, that somebody's gone through trauma or experienced something that, that is traumatic and, and that they need it. And I could just, you know, be like, Oh, I want to hold you. I want to hug you. But it's not until I have permission from that birthing person 
that I do that, right? And when they started working with Aria, I really noticed a shift in her trust in not just the process, but in me. And it's it's really a compliment when they do open up and they do ask to be held without without being so direct. A lot of people don't just straight up say, hey, I need you to hold space for me. But when, they, when they're giving those cues that they're ready to really just let go and, and let mm-hmm. you hold that space... It really, like, it was really apparent after they started working with Aerie. Like, I can't sing Aerie's praises enough. And it was the same. Raven thought Aerie was the bee's knees because they are. And <laughs> I think we all in this space can agree. Um, it's easy to get curious and, and want to say, like, well, what did you work on with Aerie? And instead, changing that that question when I would talk to them after they talked to Aerie and changing it to, is there anything you want to share from today, right? And giving them permission to savor and to keep to themselves what they needed to keep to themselves. Like Ari had mentioned, their trauma is not my entertainment. Um, It's not for me unless they want to share it with me, right? And even then, it's not for me to carry for them. It's not for me to take on or to fix, right? Um, and I think that that people get caught up in that um, with, around anybody that's experiencing trauma that you care about. You don't need to take it on. It's not yours. And, and it's actually more harmful because it's, it's not yours. Um, mm. And so when that wall kind of started coming down and that trust in me from the birthing person started growing, I really get excited about these things and I am more laissez-faire about, about structure. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. Um, I don't think that it is important for the human experience. I think that we should relinquish some control and allow us to kind of move through these naturally, these types of emotions, these feelings. And so a huge thing for me with this client was really just honoring where she was at and meeting her where she was at. So when they were ready to start discussing in more depth their feelings and and what was coming up for them, I was ready to hold them. And I was ready to receive that, but in a way that was more to guide them through the emotions and through the experience instead of taking it from them because it wasn't my experience to take. Um, And knowing that these types of feelings were coming up and and kind of just letting them happen instead of trying to anticipate like what's next what's next how are they going to feel um when i talk to them next time well last time they talked to airy they felt xyz so should i anticipate that again and and just knowing that they're a person and every day it's going to be different um but i think that with their work with airy they really started to blossom and like open up and be like, kind of like relax, right? Like somebody does have my back and somebody is here to hold me. And and I think that having Aerie, working alongside Aerie and having that container for the client to really let go of the protection that they had created for themselves, it allowed me to really see that like unfold in real time. And it was beautiful. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even say in enough words how proud I am of this birthing person. Um, I get like teary eyed thinking about it (laughs) Um, because of how much they've grown. (laughs) I can't, 
I can't contain it anymore. <laughs> I had to unmute. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Dear listeners, please be prepared for a love fest if you haven't already. This is just a giant doula romance. You can change this podcast to just doula romances. Oh yeah, um, I'm I'm in love with doulas more than I am my own husband, and I hope he's listening. <laughs> he knows. He knows. Uh, <laughs> just honestly, this is so funny. I, Mickey and I actually we haven't talked to this extent about this experience, and I just I want to first off I want to say that Mickey, everything you said, I'm dying because that's how I would describe. That's how I would describe working on the other end of how your support was obviously so impactful to Raven and and seeing how it was, it felt like perfect. And like, this is such a beautiful fucking scenario about the importance of community, A, Mm -hmm. and B, how colonialism, a lot of times when people think about colonialism or when they talk about it, they talk about it in regards to institutions, Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, of course, it's really important to think about that. But also like thinking about the intersections of colonialism and sexual violence, one of the huge woundings is being let down by the people that are closest to us. And that was also a narrative of working with Raven is the fact that like they had been let down Mm -hmm. by some of their closest people right before and during this pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that is echoed. So that notion of like not being safe, right? Like, yeah, institutionally, that's a narrative that's, you know, present in so many of our lives, but also by, by those within our community, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's also so so as a survivor, that's like one of the things is a lot of times, people are like, Oh, when I come and I want to work around healing, uh, they anticipate talking about the wounding of what happened to them. Mm -hmm. Originally, the actual act of violence, but what happens is, is that act of violence is just layered and layered and layered by all these other examples of violence. So that narrative of sexual violence and then feeling like we weren't protected by those that should have been protecting us, that we weren't supported by those that we should have been able to rely on. When we get older and we have more and more examples of people letting us down and also specifically, to be candid, like the women in our lives letting us down, then suddenly when we're in our healing space, we're talking about the wounding of, of our feminine relationships mm-hmm. first. Like that's what's most hurtful than necessarily talking about the experience of, of rape that happened when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And so that's the other thing. Like, so, so for me, working with survivors, that's a very common thing to happen, let alone working with pregnant survivors because the pregnancy is activating ancestral connections is activating experiences that have been dormant deep in our tissues right like the transformation of of pregnancy spiritually and physically it's bringing everything up to the surface and so that's one of the beautiful things about birth work is that yeah like someone can come in talking about their struggle with nausea and the next thing you know they're talking about how how they're deeply wounded by their partner not being able to show up in a helpful way. Or they're talking about how this nausea is reminding them of this constant feeling of vulnerability, you know, that they felt in their childhood home. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I just wanted to like kind of name that in, in, in drawing it back specifically to working with Raven. Yeah. Like Raven 
is such a wildly brilliant and when I say courageous, I'm not meaning like the cheesy, like you're so brave walking in this world without makeup. You know how people say it for like such stupid shit. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like when I say courageous, I, I think that there's, there's very little things in life, in my opinion, that are scarier than turning into our wounding, mm-hmm. to turning into the areas that we're not necessarily proud of in terms of how we responded to turning into accountability, to turning into, you know, our deepest uncomfortabilities. Like doing that in general is really fucking hard. Doing that while we're pregnant, doing that while we're pregnant and we already have a young kiddo to take care of, like that is hella brave. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Mickey, like Raven showed up with such profound vulnerability and profound courage and so it felt like every week every week it was just a wild transformation and shape and a wild application of all the stuff that we've been talking about and I feel like one of the reasons why I am so proud Mickey of how you and I showed up is that we showed up as like a united front even before we really knew each other like that (laughs) like we showed up in a in as a united front and I feel like we truly were tangibly able to surround Raven with the support and the belief that she deserves, you know, like we were able to reflect back that strength and that courage and that vulnerability so that if she were ever to doubt that within herself, she had two of us reflecting that back. Yeah. And I feel like that reflection, that, that degree of sincere reflection, like that's the least we could do. Yeah. as support people, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, she really, I don't, I guess inspired me to really put those things into practice myself while I was supporting her. Um, I have never had a client take healing so seriously. I, I really though, I, and I mean it, um, she was determined and still to this day is growing and recognizing that she's still healing. And she was like, I have never seen so much grit in one person to be like, you know what? I'm not repeating these cycles. I am not having that experience again. I am going to get through this. I am going to work through this. I'm literally in awe of, of how they handled their pregnancy, their birth um, and their postpartum and, and parenthood. Um, and it's just incredible to see. And I don't know if you want us to get into specifics of like different coping things that we offered to the clients. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was the preparation was more monumental than, than supporting the birth itself because they had done so much work prior to that birth that it was, it was so gentle and like beautiful and Raven had all of the control and their partner and and myself, we were just there to ensure that that control was maintained and it was badass. And I can really honestly sit here and celebrate the experience and the, the pregnant, like that ceremony itself was what set them up for that. Remember do you mind? Go ahead. Okay, Mickey, I'm if it's cool to you, I want to give a short, like a short breakdown of like the first birthing experience. Mm-hmm. 
So in short, um, the first birth was something that's really common, which is unfortunately birthing people feeling like they have zero control over what's happening to them. Um, They felt pressured into getting an induction. They felt pressured, like bullied rather, by, well, actually specifically or especially with this one nurse, like constantly bullied, like treated as if they were not informed or smart enough to make their own decisions. They were touched without consent. Their baby was touched without consent. Um, and they, one of the big things that they felt was that the hospital staff treated this birth like anything but sacred. So some of the woundings or some of the challenges that our birthing person specifically wanted to work on was maintaining connection to themselves if they were or when they find themselves challenged by the medical folks, being able to stay connected to their courage and their sense of trusting themselves and their baby when they were met with harm, you know, like people talking down to them or trying to take away their power. And then also a lot of the strategy we talked about was these, so a lot of these strategies sound like intellectual strategies, you know, like we're talking it out and figuring it out, but a lot of them actually translate into physical strategies, right? So just to give one quick example, one of the things in their first birth experience is that it was a teaching hospital. And so they had a lot of students coming in during pelvic exams and everything. And it made them feel very small, made the birthing person feel very small and out of control. So talking about strategies to put in their birth vision, but one of the other strategies was asking Mickey to place a hand between her shoulder blades when medical providers were in the room to remind them of pulling their shoulders back and drawing into a physical embodied shape of confidence and courage and connection to themselves. So those are just some examples of, of what was present, you know, coming into this experience. Yeah. Um, so when labor started, the big focus was to make sure that the birth plan was visible, right? And that it was recognized by everybody coming into that space. Another thing that I thought was important and that the birthing person felt was really important was that we utilize smoke medicine in a lot of our ceremonies. And we couldn't do that in the medical industrial complex, right? Like there are rules surrounding that that I don't agree with, but there are rules. And in an effort to keep the peace, I actually made some essential oil blends to include those smoke medicines, for example, cedar and rosemary in those blends so that we could kind of have that ceremony and set up that sort of space that we were really striving for during their birthing experience. And it just felt like spending time with family, right? And with friends and and the birthing person felt, I I think they seemed relaxed um, and comfortable and, and safe. And I think a huge part of that was the work that they had done, right? And was knowing that I was there and knowing that we could communicate with Aerie if we needed to, right? We had our phones. And did Raven notify you or did I notify you, Aerie, that it was time? Um, I think you did. I, that's what and I thought, but I couldn't remember. 
Yeah. And I also want to also remind us of the fucking epic story of Raven being pressured into an induction again. Uh-huh. And they and they said no. Like, remember they like completely oh, yeah, Yes. Yeah. So like a lot of pregnant people, scare tactics were being used. And I believe that the wording that the medical provider said at the office for their reason for induction at 36 weeks, which or 38, was do you want a stillborn baby? <sighs> and they caught the birthing person called me after that appointment and was obviously in distress and, you know, said, what would you do? And I said, listen, it's not about what I would do. How do you feel about this? And they said, well, I, th- I think they're just trying to scare me. And so I said, okay, so what can be done to kind of rem- like remedy that or, or like fight the fear or like, how can we move through this fear? Um, and kind of like talking about what, what coping mechanisms had they used before. And so one of them was practicing saying no, right. And, and practicing not over explaining, not saying no, because I read some article saying no, that's the complete sentence. No. Yes. And this was at the point where they were doing the weekly check-ins and I said, okay, so what's going to happen at the next appointment? And the birthing person was like, I'm not down. Like I'm not scheduling this. And I was like, okay, so I got your back. You're not doing this. I was like, do you want me to come to your appointment with you? They decided they didn't need me. And and with COVID, I think only the partner was allowed anyway. Um, But I was like, I got my phone, like, tell me what you need. And they said no. And it was honored. And I think that was a huge win for the birthing person because they were like validated in saying no and understood that it would be respected and understood that they even had that option because like so many people, especially people from, from our communities, non-white people, it's scary to say no in those situations, especially surrounding children because the fear, right, is that our children are going to be taken away. And it's been proven time and time again that our children have been taken away by these institutions. And so that was a huge fear in general for the birthing person was, is this going to have repercussions later? You know, if I say no. So when they said no, and that was honored, you could see that it took a huge weight off of their feelings surrounding what's next. So they're like, no, I'm, I'm not doing this. And it was awesome. It was so awesome. I was so It was proud. so fucking awesome. <laughs> so awesome. And also, I want to throw in, too, like, not only was it honored, but um, I remember birthing person sharing how that medical provider's body language and tone with them totally changed. Uh-huh. So, like, it wasn't just technically honored, but, like, it was respected. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what they needed. Like, yes. the, the yes. medical provider was, like... I, you know, because the birthing person's on Medicaid. So as you probably all know, these Medicaid offices get filled and it's all POC, right? And the providers tend to be, you know, harmful in, in ways that maybe are unbeknownst to them. 
but harmful nonetheless, right? And the birthing person that we were supporting had mentioned that they had felt like they were just a number in those waiting rooms. And they had felt like it was just like, get these people in, get these people out. And so I think that there was a disproportionate number of people that said no to the providers. And I think that the provider was probably taken back and was like, oh, shit, like somebody just told me no, and I have to, li- I have to respect that. And so, yeah, I hope that it created a, a long-term change for that medical provider because it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you're so funny. You're all like nice and polite. And I was like, fuck that medical provider. It created a lasting change for our birthing person. Cause like their, their energy and their grounding this wasn't too much earlier than when birth came, you know? So like their, their trust in themselves really solidified with that experience. And um, I'm just so hyped up, you know, just like being back in that space. But that's one of the beautiful things I think about, oh, about this work and about ceremony is that sometimes people feel that to have an empowered birth experience, they have to have everything quote unquote right. They have mm-hmm. to have all, the, have all the right phrases. They have to have the right breathing exercises and like essential oils and like all these things. But then all it takes is one experience like this mm-hmm. where that connection to our own power, again, is becomes solidified and fortified. And so that everything else, like all those strategies, they're still helpful. They're still powerful, but they're not even necessary. You know, like we don't necessarily need all those steps in order to stay connected to our power. You know, we don't necessarily need all those bells and whistles to dive straight into that ceremony space, that ritual space. I think that's one of the most powerful things about the story is that the ceremony, that sacred resonance, that had already begun way before y'all entered the birth room. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I don't even know how I glossed over that experience thank you um go team (laughs) um the birth was it was awesome um it was awesome because they were empowered right it it was nothing that I did it was nothing that specifically happened aside from the birthing person had full control right and and we were just the their partner and I were just there to make sure that control was maintained and and make sure that 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 control stayed where it needed to stay to have a birth that was healing and gentle and the experience that all birthing people I, I believe probably desire um, that they felt like they were respected and that they were honored in the way that a, a human deserves to be honored and respected Um I I think one really important thing was Raven had worked so hard to um, really establish those, those boundaries, right. And, and really know what they needed to feel safe in that space. So a lot of it, I felt pretty hands off in the sense that the birthing person knew their power and they were like, you know what, I got this. And but they also knew they were capable and strong and able to say, this is what I want and not have that fear of the medical provider. And I don't like to call them authority because they're, they're really not. 
the birthing person is the authority in the situation. Um, But knowing that that power was hers and knowing that ultimately they had to respect that. And I don't know if it was by chance that day or we were being protected by our own ancestors. Um, Something that really came up for the birthing person during their birth experience was, was their grandmother because that was their support person, right? Their cheerleader, the the person that never let them down. Um, And they had, they had lost her. And so there was a point where that was all the birthing person could think about was grieving that person and, and mourning the fact that that person would never meet their baby. And then reframing that conversation around our beliefs ancestrally and traditionally, like our ancestors are there and they are with us. And it was so beautiful because there was a point where the birthing person was like, my grandmother's here. I I know that they're here. I know that they're with me and just opening up the conversation and, and letting them go through that motion when they did have that moment where they were, they were mourning and grieving and allowing the space for that and recognizing that that was totally okay and totally normal. And it was normal because it, it was happening, right? It, it, I think oftentimes with the way that media portrays birth is like the whole experience is based off of the labor itself and, and the birth itself. And um, it rarely is. It's everything all at once. And I think that, that the birthing person really was knowing that the experience was was their experience. It didn't have to be that Instagram experience that somebody documented for the world. And that the experience was happening the way that it should, right? And mm. and that they had the power and that one way or another, the baby was coming and they were going to have it their way. And I think just knowing that they had, like for them, knowing that they had that control was huge and knowing that they had that support, right? Knowing that if we really needed to, we could call Ari or FaceTime Ari and go through some of those exercises or coping mechanisms that that Ari had helped them establish. Um, And if they needed to, I'd be willing to ruin my, my reputation with that hospital. I didn't give a shit because what ultimately what they're really going to remember me and ban me so so i think knowing that we had her back so badass sorry i I don't i just i don't care anymore am i really going to be banned by some old white guy no because i'm still going to show up i will find a way you wear (laughs) wigs and a mustache i I mean i found a way during covid and i'm not afraid to to say it, I'll out myself. You know, during COVID, they were like, well, you have to have XYZ to get into the hospital. And I was like, cool, here's a piece of paper. They don't know where I got that from. They don't even know what they're looking for. <laughs> and one and one of the days, they didn't even ask me. I just said, hey, I'm a doula. And the little sweet old lady at the desk said, oh, what kind? what is a doula? And I was like, you know, and the other lady at the desk chimed in was like, she's like a birth coach. And I was like, yeah, that. And they let me go. Like they didn't even ask for my idea. I could have been anybody. Um, and so <laughs> I don't care. I was ready to risk it for the biscuit. Like I was going to support this person hell or high water. Like it was happening. And, and I think just knowing that and reassuring that I was there and I was going to 
do whatever they needed and that I was willing to support them in that way. I think that really set the tone for them really honing into their power and really feeling it all came down to feeling supported. I think for them, they were like, people have my back. So let me show you how powerful I am. And dude, it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I just keep getting goosebumps. was <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was so cool. And there is a point where actually the nurse from their first birth that they really remembered this nurse, they remembered because of how harmful they were um, during their first birth. This nurse told them, well, you have tattoos. This IV shouldn't hurt that much because Raven was, was nervous about the IV and essentially just told her like, you're being a baby. Oh my God. Yeah. And so that nurse came in and I was like, show my peacock feathers. I was asking her questions. She really, she had her act together that day because I was ready to fight her in the streets. I did not care because the, (laughs) so she came in and she told us her name and you could see in Raven, her expressions are very visible and you could see she instantly was like uncomfortable. So I was like, what the hell? And her partner was like, that's the nurse. That's the nurse. Cause it like, we had talked about this nurse before. So he's like telling me and I'm like, Oh, Oh fuck. Like, how is this happening right now? How is this nurse here? So I'm, what are the odds? Yeah. I'm on high alert. Like, Oh shit, this is going to get ugly. Right. And she was like a different person. They like, they really were like, dude, that, that I swear that's her, but she's not acting the same. And I really think it was a matter, and maybe they didn't even remember the birthing person, right? Because how many other people have they harmed in that way, right? Essentially, it felt like to this nurse that birthing people were just numbers, right? And that happens at a lot of these hospitals. Um, So I don't even know if the nurse remembered them, but they remembered, and they remembered how that nurse made them feel. And it was crazy because you could see that the birthing person was uncomfortable, And then when the birthing person realized they still had the power and the control. And I was like, if you want, we can say that this nurse can't come back. Like you can say that that's okay. And I said, if you want, you know, your, your husband can do it or I can do it. Like whatever you want, if you don't want this person in this space, you can ask for that. And when they knew that they could do that and they understood that that was okay. And, and we had had that conversation before, right? If, if anybody in this birthing space makes you uncomfortable, like they don't have to be in the room and we will make a fuss until that person's removed. And so, you know, just reiterating that they had that option and, and reminding them that they had the power, that this was their birth and it was going to be their way. You could see the whole demeanor change, right? And like calm just washed over, the birthing person and, and, and the partner, right? Cause, cause the partner was, he was ready to like protect his baby and, and the person that he loved. And, and so you could just feel the whole energy in the room shift, just knowing that they had that option. And I think we only saw that nurse like one more time. We didn't have to get ugly, but just for them knowing that that was even an option was something that really just gave them peace. And I think that's all we can ask for in those spaces is, is the peace to do what we're designed to do, to have our babies, to have our babies in an environment that feels good to us. And it was just so crazy and so awesome to really see this person 
use those powers that they gained during their pregnancy and the skills that they gained during their pregnancy and watching this healed person birth in that way. And, and of course, they're still healing in other ways, but knowing that some of those traumas were really not even an issue at the time. I, and, and knowing that, that they really did get the care from Ari and, and from myself that, that we set them up and like feeling like they really took this seriously. And, and that's what I meant earlier when I said like, I had never met somebody take it so seriously watching those coping skills come out during their labor when there were moments that were intense and sad there, there was some sadness there and, and seeing that and witnessing that and, and witnessing this person in this space that they had once felt so helpless in witnessing them just really be in charge was incredible. And I seriously am so proud of them. Um, Do you mind Mickey, like just for folks who are listening to this, who are survivors, especially of sexual violence and mm -hmm. who are either pregnant or considering having children like, mm -hmm. I just want to say that this is such a beautiful example of the power of birth and healing, like how so much of what Mickey shared about this experience, it's not explicitly related to healing from sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Yet, one of the many, many reasons why this story is just so powerful to me is because it's an example of a birthing person who did the work and accessed the support and the resilience to continue to connect to their power and how mm -hmm. so much power was found from just connecting to choice, mm -hmm. whether or not they chose to utilize that choice even, you know, but just knowing that they had it and how that is enough for healing. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this is just a beautiful example about how we don't have to dive into overt trauma to mm -hmm. still have healing from it through birth experience just by birth being birth. Mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and and so just to trust that yeah that like really rooting down into pregnancy really rooting down into this birth like that's enough like we don't always have to we don't have to explicitly access our trauma to heal like that is enough and of course if you are feeling called to specifically dive into your history of trauma during this birth then honor it mm -hmm. then you know like then honor it but it's not it's not necessary to do that, to have an empowered birth. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that y'all wanted to share about Raven meeting their baby? Yes. And the labor itself was kind of long. And as a birth worker, you know, it's important for self-care. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go take a nap and a shower. I'll be back. My phone's on high, like you know, that weird sleep that you get during your client's birth. Um, <laughs> that weird non-sleep. Yes. Yeah. I had, and I was like having a, a dream that like, but I was awake. Like, do you know what I mean? Those weird dreams where you're like, Oh I yeah. I'm awake. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I went home to shower and it's around like six or seven and I know it's shift change. So I send a message to their partner, just like, Hey, just checking in, like what's going on. And Raven decides to call me and says, you know, I'm opting for a cesarean and I want you to know. And it was interesting because 
their first birth, they had had a cesarean. And that was something that they didn't, in their plan, didn't want again. However, when we made the plan, we talked about flexibility, right? Because we know that there were instances where things could happen. And and we talked about what happens if you don't have a vaginal birth and you have a belly birth instead. And so they were fine with it so long as it was their choice. So I, I asked, I said, are you feeling pressured to, to do so? And they said, no, the midwife actually said that they believed I could still have a vaginal birth. And I said, okay, so let's talk about why you're ready. And a, a big thing of it was they knew that they had done what they went there to do, right? She felt good in her choice. And whether that's something I would have done or whatever didn't matter at that time. And I think a lot of birth workers get hung up on that because they want to say that they're the VBAC expert or, or, or whatever. And they have their, their intentions and their hearts set on a specific outcome. And because the birthing person went in going like, I don't really have it set on a specific outcome. Sure, it would be nice to have that vaginal birth, but but I'm not dead set on that. I'm set on healing, right? I'm set on making choices for me. I'm set on being the one that's in control of the situation. I think that changed the narrative a lot for them. And, you know, they told me like, I'm ready. Like, this is what I want. And, you know, after a little back and forth, like, are you sure? I want to make sure that you're supported. I want you to do what you want to do. Do you want me there? Like, tell me everything you need from me in this moment. Like, I can be there. And a big thing that they had said was they didn't want to have their baby on Lincoln's birthday. And, you know, I thought that was important for them at that time because we were and are actively working to decolonize, right? And we don't want those reminders of people that have abused us and and have been harmful to our people and and to our communities and and to our ancestors. And so I kind of like chuckled, like, you know, that's kind of awesome that you even thought of that right now. And so, um, yeah, so they had their cesarean and they felt good about their choice and they still feel good about their choice. And, and I'm proud of them for that. Lincoln as in Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I guess I should have been awesome. clear about which, which Lincoln. <laughs> no, I think it was clear. I just wanted to make sure. I have a question. I think we got a good sense of what happened and the work that the birthing person did in preparation for this experience and how that impacted the experience. I'm wondering what it was like for you, uh, Arian, Mickey, like what, what came up for you? How did you prepare to support this person? And what were, or what are some things that you look out for uh, within yourselves as survivors supporting survivors? Thank you, Ajira. As birth workers, I feel like honestly, we need to ask each other that sort of question more often. Okay. So in short, um, Raven had an experience right before or at the beginning of the pregnancy where her closest friends, female friends, were, in short, horrible. They really let her down. Um, And even though that experience wasn't, like, overtly tied to sexual violence, like, to be candid, hearing that was a trigger for me, specifically because 
two of my experiences of sexual violence um, they happened in college and both times it was a female friend basically putting me up on the altar of sacrifice. Um, like one of them in short left me alone with, with the perpetrator because she wanted to go hook up with someone else. So that notion of a female friend letting us down and harming us so deeply, like that really activated me. And that was towards the beginning. And so, um, because I've been doing, I've been supporting survivors of sexual assault at this point for 13 years. So in the moment I was able to stay in the moment, like it didn't, it didn't rock me, you know, like I was able to maintain my shape, like, you know, able to stay connected to, to the birthing person and their story. But it wasn't until afterwards, after that session was over, after I let those boundaries fall and I was just back to being, you know, me, that's when that, hit in. And that's when I started to feel, uh, surges of anger. Like I fucking took it personal, you know? Um, and so I was able to do, basically I was able to practice all the shit that I've been working so hard to be doing, which is, um, a acknowledging my anger because it's something that, um, growing up, I was not allowed to express let alone encouraged to connect to. So I was acknowledging it. Um, I went outside because uh, A, I didn't, you know, I wanted to bring that energy outside of my house. Um, but I went outside and I asked the wind for support to move it through me and away. Then after I felt like there was more room within me, you know, like the anger started to, to lessen. Uh, I started to connect to compassion, compassion for myself then, just like honoring how that was fucking wrong, you know, so feeling compassion for myself at that age, but then also, and this is not something that I would ever expect or ask of anyone else, but for me personally, this has helped me. Um, I was able to connect to compassion to those young women back then who let me down so profusely because of our toxic masculinity and our patriarchal culture teaches us, especially I believe young women, that we are all inherently in competition of each other. And I think that that, that and many other things, I think contributed to a situation where these people who were supposedly caring about me were capable of doing that. Um, so this is a really, I'm literally just giving you a step-by-step about what I did, but that is one example of how, yeah, my, my wounding was activated in this situation, but how, yeah, all my practices were able to be helpful and, and how I was able to continue to stay in service of this birthing person's journey while still being in service to myself. Mm, Thank you. What about you, Mickey? A huge practice for me during their experience, especially because similarly with Aerie, that loss of friendship kind of triggered some anger for me was, you know, having lived in four states now, I've, I've lost a lot of friends along the way. And, and also doing your own healing, you'll lose a lot of friends along the way, right? And recognizing that losing those friends for Raven was necessary in their healing too. And Anyway, so a big thing 
for me was that I really leaned on my community. Um, So I was doing weekly check-ins with a few other Latinx women each week, every Wednesday night. And I had that time carved out for myself. I wouldn't do anything else. Like that was my time. That was my jam. And so a big thing that was important to me was leaning on my community and allowing them to hold space for me, even without sharing the details of somebody else's experiences that were triggering my own, but just being able to go into that space and know that I had my people that had my back. Right. And, and that I could say, Hey guys, I'm hurting today. And you know, this is what I'm feeling will you witness me work through this? Right. And, and having those constant reminders from those people and and having that time carved out and knowing that I, that I had that time set aside for me and only me was monumental in making sure that I was able to successfully support somebody without burning myself out, without putting myself in a, in a situation or in a space that, that wasn't going to negatively impact my life and my relationships and my own things, because Again, like it's not our trauma to carry, but it will bring up our own trauma that we are carrying still. And so recognizing that there could be some triggers and getting ahead of those by having that time carved out, by having my own coping skills, right? Practicing what I preach, um, having my supplies for ceremony, having my access to my elders, having access to the people that, that are most important to me in my community and having understanding from my community that, Hey, I might not be available because I'm working through something too. And something has been activated that I need to pay attention to and that I need to honor. Um, and also just really leaning on my own spirituality, right. And knowing that I do have a safe container for myself to practice those healing modalities in a way that feel good to me, knowing that I can sit and commune with my ancestors, that I can write my letters to them, that I can work through those things um, and still be supportive to the birthing person. And I think that they were critical in being supportive to the birthing person because how could I support somebody when I was just carrying around my own traumas and bringing my own traumas to something that I'm supposed to be guiding them through, right? It wasn't it wasn't the birthing person's job to heal me and really just being inspired by the birthing person taking their healing seriously helped me a ton. And so, yeah. Mm, thank you. Kilia, I'm excited to hear this letter. Yeah. I have uh, a thank you letter slash note of blessing for the two of you from Raven that they wanted me to share with you. They write, I'm not sure where to begin. They've helped me with so much. With my first pregnancy, I didn't have a doula. I didn't feel like my OB listened to me. They pushed a C-section on me and I felt like I had to because I thought the doctors know more than me. I guess I have to trust them. For the second pregnancy, I wanted an indigenous woman as my doula because I felt more comfortable with my own people. I finally found Michaela and messaged her right away. I don't mean to sound offensive, but I just know white women who have had doulas, so I thought it would be pricey, since I've seen mostly privileged women have them. Mickey and I connected so well. I knew we had a good connection from the start. I felt so relieved. I was so excited because I was determined to take care of myself the best I could. 
With Mickey and Ari, they made me feel so empowered and proud to be a woman. I'm a really shy person and I have social anxiety, so it's hard for me to talk to people sometimes. They helped me advocate for myself. Mickey and Ari both helped me through some tough times during my pregnancy and even some trauma I had from my childhood. I feel like a new woman. They helped me transform into a better person. They always made me feel heard and helped me tell my OB what I wanted for the birth and how hard I was working to take care of myself. I spoke firmly and got my wishes, and the OBs started listening to me. I'm so proud of the woman I'm becoming, and they helped me see her. I feel like my healing journey has begun. I'm glad we met at the time we did. They've encouraged me to be the best woman I can be and that I am loved and appreciated. They feel like sisters to me. I feel like I have these good friends for life. Both my boys adore them, and it was so sweet seeing my two-year-old, River, be so comfortable around them and play with them. I'm just so happy. I feel like our group of Indigenous people in Michigan are slowly getting together and becoming more of a community. I'm so glad to be a part of that and that I was able to cross paths with Mickey and Ari. Oh, (laughs) I'm so glad you can't see me right now. I know. I'm like... Wow. <laughs> Thank you. That's honestly the best. That's my dream. Like, honestly, y'all, if I were to, you know, if I were to pass tomorrow, hearing that I was able to contribute to such an experience, like, I'd feel proud, you know? of what I did in this lifetime. Mm. Like that's, 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 that's my, that's everything. I mean, this is why we do the work, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm so snotty right now. (laughs) That was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. This is what we're here for. I just affirm you both for all the wonderful work you do. Thank you so much for sharing some of your lives with us. Thank you for having us. Of course. And thank you to Raven for inviting us and allowing us to be part of your journey and your family's journey. And hopefully, hopefully friend, you could feel in our voices, how meaningful of an experience this was and how truly grateful and how much of an honor it was to witness your strength and courage and transformation. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, to echo Ari, I, I feel so lucky to even know Raven and bear witness to the person that they are and, and the woman that they are becoming and, I'm so proud. If anything from today's episode resonated with you, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. And follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Doula Stories. If you're a doula and you have a story to share, email us at doulastories at gmail.com. This episode was produced by me, Kelia Alder, and our music is by Rick Bassett. 
Special thanks to Eric Guajardo Johnson and Micaela McHenry for sharing their stories with us, and to Raven for allowing them to share your story. If you want to learn more about Ari and Mickey and their work, check out the show notes from this episode. Thanks also to Cameron Sharp and to my deliciously delightful co-host, Ajira Darch. <laughs>